I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji, and you're listening to a Code Switch Podcast Extra. We've got three stories to mark the 25th anniversary of the L.A. civil unrest slash uprising slash riots. For years and years and years, I insisted on calling it the uprising. Uh, I think it was a riot, as having been there. The L.A. civil unrest. I used to call it the uprising, and now I'd say L.A. riots. No one I interviewed could agree on what to call what happened on April 29, 1992, after four police officers were acquitted for beating Rodney King. And in the 25th anniversary stories that aired throughout this week, NPR refers to the incident as the L.A. riots. Now, whatever people are calling it, we know there isn't a single narrative. And in this podcast extra, you're going to hear from a Latino city councilman who represented a neighborhood that burned, a Korean-American who worked at a gas station in Compton, and a prominent black pastor who gave the most memorable sermon to his congregation in South Central L.A. Now... We often talk about what happened in 92 in terms of tensions between the black community, white law enforcement, and Korean small business owners. But Latinos not only made up a majority of the people arrested during the riots, they made up a majority of the people in some of the neighborhoods that burned. I went to a mostly Latino neighborhood six miles north of South Central LA to tell a riot story you don't often hear. 1223 Alvarado Street, we got flames coming out of the attic, smoke, and people inside the building. This neighborhood is called Pico right Union, Pico and today, Mike Hernandez is reporting a fire. An Our Lady of Guadalupe plaque swings in the breeze from the second floor of a rundown, craftsman-style duplex, its roof in flames. We find out later no one got hurt, but the scene is eerily coincidental. Sirens, a chopper circling, smoke in the air. It is really weird that we're talking about buildings burning down and there is a building burning down. Yeah. Mike Hernandez, the former city councilman who represented this area during the riots, suggested we meet here because all four of these corners were on fire 25 years ago. He says Pico Union hasn't really changed that much since 92. It was, and still is, more than 80% Latino, heavily immigrant, mostly Mexican and Central American, really poor, and Hernandez says back then... We had the density here twice of Manhattan's. Our fire station, for example, fire station 11 was the busiest fire station in the nation. Hernandez says he knew long before the riots started that Pico Union was just as combustible as South Central L.A. The burning and looting spread here on the second day of the unrest, and he recalls that the few law enforcement he saw were not protecting and serving. He says it's because in the early 90s, Latino was often synonymous with illegal. Here he is talking about it on NPR in 1992. The response to me when I needed the National Guard to protect the people of this area and I needed to protect the businesses, protect the homes, is they gave me the Border Patrol. It was totally an insult. Today, Hernandez is 65. He has a difficult time catching his breath and uses a giant wooden staff to steady his gait. He says times dulled his memories, but this is something he can't forget. He told me the rioting triggered nightmares of home for the Central American immigrants who had fled civil war. He doesn't deny people in this community looted, but says the vast majority were scared out of their minds. And fueling that fear? The presence of what was then called the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which included the Border Patrol. Hernandez says he couldn't get anyone to pay attention to what was happening in Pico Union. So he played a little trick on the mayor. I called Tom Bradley's office. I left a message that said, I heard they were picking up Nigerians in South L.A., INS. About 15, 20 minutes later, I get a call from the mayor. Hernandez knew Mayor Bradley once lived in South L.A., and some of his most 
fervent support came from the area's black community. He's like, Councilman, what is this? I hear that INS is picking up Nigerians. And I said, did I see Nigerians? I might have met Nicaraguans. And maybe it wasn't South Italy. Maybe it was Pico Union. And maybe it wasn't just the INS. Maybe it was the LAPD, too. Wow. This is deja vu. Madeline Janis is flipping through a stack of declarations from Pico Union residents detained during the riots. Her name came up a bunch of times in Webster Commission documents we found archived in cardboard boxes at the University of Southern California. That was the FBI's five-month investigation into the LAPD's response to the riots. And when I called Janice for an interview, she asked me to bring copies to jog her memory. Yep, I remember this. Back then, Janice, an attorney, ran a Pico Union-based nonprofit called Garesen, which is still in the neighborhood and provides all kinds of assistance to immigrants. She told me right after the riots, she helped a couple dozen people facing deportation. People like 18-year-old Salvadoran Marta Campos, arrested by the LAPD at 3 in the afternoon on April 30th while drinking a fruit juice in front of a convenience store. Here's Janice reading from her declaration. An officer demanded to know my name and if I had any immigration papers and what country I was from. I responded that I had no papers and I told him what country I was from. I was then taken to a police station with many other people. Immigration arrived in several vans and took me and many other people away. Martha Campos' declaration was taken at an immigration detention center in San Pedro, which is about a 45-minute drive from downtown L.A., 15 days after she was picked up. She says in detention, she slept on narrow concrete benches, was fed dry meat and old bread, and not allowed to bathe. She was seven months pregnant. I fear that the treatment I have suffered while in INS custody could have caused or might still cause serious harm to either me or my baby or both. I declare under penalty of perjury that the foregoing is true and correct to the best of my knowledge and belief. Marta Campos. This was so awful, I think I blocked it out of my memory. What happened to Marta Campos shouldn't have. The LAPD wasn't and still isn't allowed to, quote, initiate police action with the objective of discovering the alien status of a person, unquote. It can only involve immigration enforcement when a, quote, undocumented alien has been arrested for serious misdemeanors or a felony. It's a rule called Special Order 40, and it's been around since the late 70s. What is Special Order 40? I'm not familiar with it. That's Robert Mushrak. He was the district director of the INS in Los Angeles during the unrest, and he's been retired for about 23 years. Mushrak remembers the riots were an all-hands-on-deck situation, and he sent in agents to help as requested. End of story. And as far as Special Order 40, here's how he reacted when I told him about it. I think that's ridiculous. Many people don't realize that illegal entry into the United States is a misdemeanor in and of itself, a violation of 8 U.S.C. 1325, and then a re-entry after deportation is a felony. How much longer are we going to accept that in our society? Current LAPD chief Charlie Beck seems to have accepted that there are a couple hundred thousand L.A. residents who don't have legal status. And, you know, i got to be their police chief, too. I'm not just a police chief to property owners. I'm not just a police chief to business owners. Chief Beck's been at the LAPD as long as Special Order 40's been around, and he says he can't recall a time it wasn't followed, even after I told him about the Webster Commission documents that show otherwise. 
Regardless, he says, it's long been crucial that the LAPD isn't thought of as immigration enforcement because it erodes trust and immigrants stop reporting crime. Just last month, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti expanded Special Order 40 to include firefighters, port and airport police. The mayor says he's trying to quell fears stoked in L.A.'s immigrant communities by President Trump's call for more cooperation between local law enforcement and federal immigration authorities. So to make our city safer, we're focused on keeping those bridges from being burned down right now. I remind Garcetti, this city burned down 25 years ago, and Special Order 40 appears to have been an afterthought amidst the chaos. It's one thing to have a policy or a law on the books, but it's another thing to make sure that it is enforced and enforced by everybody. And this new generation of police officers has come up understanding this both from moral and practical terms. We're not perfect, but in this imperfect paradise that we call Los Angeles, I think we're better and more resilient because of what we went through in 1992. NPR's Mandalit del Barco spent the day with Carol Park, a Korean-American who worked at her family's gas station in Compton in 92. Park wrote about her experience in a book called Memoir of a Cashier. Compton was notoriously dangerous and lionized by the hip-hop group N.W.A., an impoverished African-American city with many small businesses owned by Korean-American immigrants. It's where, on the corner of Rosecrans and Atlantic Avenues, Carol Park was holed up in the cramped cashier's booth of her family's 76 gas station, a chubby 10-year-old with glasses. Watching the world pass me by in bulletproof glass window, you know, it was weird. It was scary. The things I saw, shootings, stabbings, right, car accidents, cars riddled with bullets. Oh, yeah, just a, another gang turf war. Park was an angry but dutiful daughter working the graveyard shift on weekends with her mom. They sold gas, soda, and little roses in glass tubes that people would turn into crack pipes. Park remembers the animosity and the ugly insults. People calling me things, you know, nip, chink, jap. You know, after a while, I would get mad and start cussing right back, and then I'd be like, look, man, you want to call me a gook? Guess what? You're a, I would say, racial slurs. It was bad. People would say, you know, damn Koreans, get out of the hood. What, what are you doing here? Overcharging me for a can of soda. It was like a stick of dynamite waiting to explode. It's just like all someone needed to do was light a match and pfft. On April 29th, the day the riots kicked off, Park says she and her two older brothers were at home watching the TV news. One store that apparently is being looted at this time. This may be the flashpoint of the unrest that people were talking about. I remember seeing Reginald Denny. Remember that? Guy got pulled out of his truck. I remember watching that and just going, man, people are crazy, dude. What, what the hell is going on, right? Images of, of, of the fires, you know, the aerial shots of L.A., just thinking, this is out of this world, man. What's going on here? Like, this shouldn't be happening. Not, not here. Not in LA. This, come on, right? We're cultural capital of the United States of America. Everybody knows LA, but we're burning it down. Park says they called their mother at the gas station and begged her to come home. And mom goes, "Yeah, there are a lot of people here under the price sign. They're holding bottles, rocks, cans, bats, and they're yelling and they are screaming at cars." People come up to the window, Mrs. Park, you better get out of here. Things are going to get rough. Because people around here had a lot of respect for mom. They knew her husband had died. They knew, you know, she's a struggling single mom, three kids. They had seen me and my brothers here for years. They knew us. They knew our family. Park's mother made her escape by hiding cash from the register in a bucket topped off with trash, then slowly walking it to her car and driving home. 
For days, the family watched TV images of people burning down buildings, looting, and armed men trained by the military guarding their businesses with police nowhere to be found. So most of those Korean guys that were in Koreatown were trained. They knew how to handle firearms. They were military men. So of course they're thinking, no one's helping us. We better defend ourselves. And who wouldn't? No one was there to help us. For some of these guys, this was all that they had forever. That's it. My mom didn't have a gun, right? She wasn't here to shoot at would-be looters. When she finally made it back to Compton, Mrs. Park enticed the National Guard's troops to patrol in front of the gas station by leaving candy and soda for them on the sidewalk in front. It turns out looters rammed a car into the mechanic's garage and ransacked the place. They stole thousands of dollars of inventory, oil, tires, tools, but they couldn't get into the fortified cashier's booth. The place wasn't torched like businesses across the street, Park figures, because her mom had so many friends in the neighborhood, including the local pimp. She understood. She had come from South Korea, which had been war-torn, just a quagmire of poverty. She had experienced that kind of hunger that people probably around here experience. Mom would be like, be nice. So she was always good to the people. She always tried to cut people breaks. Park says her family was lucky. Many business owners lost their livelihoods and were never able to rebuild. There are a lot of Korean Americans who have PTSD from that time. Who wouldn't? You got shot at. You shot people. You shot at people. You know, I'm sure it's better these days, but it's still a wound. Of course, they will always carry that. We will always carry that. Cinco por uno. Today, Compton is mostly Latino, with small businesses run by Southeast Asian and Arab immigrants. Park's mother is now very ill and sold the station to her Egyptian-American worker. This week, Carol Park revisited the old bulletproof booth. The new cashier, Mohammed Abu Hazin, told her he gets insults from white customers. One time, like one guy, he said, go back to your country, like, ride the camel. I said, yeah, get me one, I will ride it. Do you worry that there might be another riot like there was back in the 90s? I doubt it. No. I would. Those conditions we're talking about, the poverty, it's still the yeah, same, right? A lot. The discrimination, the racism that you feel, still the same. But if we don't address the issues that caused the riots, 1992, 1965, Baltimore, Ferguson, those conditions are still there. Police brutality, all of that. So if people ask, do you think that's going to happen again? I'm going to say absolutely. Just where is it going to happen? A new poll by Loyola Marymount University backs her up. Seven out of ten young Angelinos said another riot is likely in the next five years. Still, there has been progress in L.A. After federal oversight and major reforms, the LAPD is more integrated. And Carol Park, who worked at the gas station from age 10 to 26, is now a researcher at UC Riverside. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. We are not proud that we set those fires. But we'd like to make a distinction to America this morning. The difference between setting a fire and starting a fire. We set some of those fires, but we didn't start any of those fires. Right now, you're listening to some of the sermon that Reverend Cecil Murray gave during the civil unrest to his congregation in South L.A. Morning Edition's David Green asked Reverend Murray to reflect on what happened 25 years ago. The black poet Langston Hughes says, What happens to a dream deferred, to a dream put on hold? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? 
or does it explode? And the history of our city proves that the dream deferred tends to explode because in 1965, the Watts riot should have been enough of a lesson to us in Los Angeles that we would not have another one, certainly within reasonable time. But then April 29, 1992, came the verdicts decision and came the explosion of the dream following. And the reverend remembers how he saw it all unfold. One of the ushers pulled me to the outside. I want you to see something, reverend. He pointed to the south, flames. He pointed to the west, flames. He pointed to the east, flames. And he says, and they're moving north. Reverend, it, your memories are so vivid. It sounds like it was yesterday. Indeed, it does. The police mentality has changed for the better. But when you saw the police shooting in Ferguson, you knew that the intensity was building. So you ask, who will protect us from our protectors? Who will defend us from our defenders? When you watched the anger in Ferguson, when you watched the anger in Baltimore, did you see a difference in 25 years? Have we somehow gotten better as a country in your eyes? We have increased in awareness. There is almost an unspoken commitment within the black community that there will be no more 1992s, no more 1965s. So that's why the movement Black Lives Matter has been a positive act. Reverend, it it, it sounds like you're saying that the Black Lives Matter movement in some ways is carrying on your legacy 25 years later in, in allowing the anger to be there, but but encouraging peace um, and not letting things explode? Thank you. Solid question. One thing that we must be dedicated to in the underserved communities of blacks and browns, we must protest, but we must protest nonviolently. Let me tell you this morning, because we got to clean up the town. Yes. We got to clean up the air. Yes. We got to clean up the air. And as you clean up, smoke gets in your eyes. But don't you worry about that. Weep a little bit and keep on walking. Smoke gets in your eyes. Blink a little bit because you cannot see through teardrops. You cannot see. 
see through the occlusion of hatred and anger and violence and you will lump all white folks together. You'll lump all Korean folks together. You'll lump all black folks together. Weep a little bit, but keep on walking. All right. The voice of the Reverend Cecil Murray today and 25 years ago during the L.A. riots. Thanks for listening to this Code Switch podcast extra. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch, and we want to hear from you. You know this. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. And I produce this podcast extra with music from Ramteen Arab Louie. A shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team. My partner in crime, Gene Demby, Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kat Chow, Walter Ray Watson, Sammy Yenigan. Our editor is Juleka Lantigua-Williams. We'll be back on Wednesday with an awesome new episode that you're going to love. I know this. Be easy. And peace.